Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Floss Weekly is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Floss Weekly with Randall Schwartz and Dan Lynch. Episode 166 for May 18th, 2011. Comp is... This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Floss Weekly, the show about free, libre, open-source software. I am your host, yes, your host, Randall Schwartz is back again, back in the saddle again. I know I've been away for a couple of weeks, and all sorts of rumors have been started about where I'm actually located or that I was lost at sea or something like that. But no, no, in fact, I am back. However, if you are watching the live video stream, you may notice that behind me is a brick wall. No, I am not taking up a new career in stand-up comedy. This is, in fact, the uh, hotel room in in downtown Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I'm uh, currently staying this week to hang out, visit with friends, including the Boston Pearlmongers and a bunch of other stuff. We may talk a little bit more about that later, or maybe we won't. That's, yeah, because it's totally irrelevant to this show, where I am each week, but there it is. But what I also have with this show all the time is a co-host, so I will bring on my co-host. Welcome back, Dan. Dan Lynch. Hi, welcome. Yep, I'm in a a very white-looking room in uh, Liverpool over in the UK. Okay, well, that makes it simple, right? So actually, I'm a little bit closer (laughs) to you. Can you tell? Is my voice a little bit louder? Is it kind of a, maybe a little less echo or something? Yeah, it sounds good, especially considering you're on 4G at the moment. That's that's really impressive. Yeah, the the, the hotel Wi-Fi sucked so badly here. Luckily, I just signed <laughs> up for Clearwire, which gives me a, essentially the Sprint slash Clear uh, 4G, well, three and a half G. It's they call it 4G. It's marketing 4G network, <laughs> and uh, it hasn't been doing too bad. I, I've been using it the last couple of days to uh, watch stuff that uh, wouldn't stream fast enough over the uh, barely one megabit hotel Wi-Fi. So uh, it is nice that there is complimentary Wi-Fi here. It's just too bad it doesn't work very well. Uh, so yeah, so we have a really interesting guest. And first off, Dan, I want to thank you for taking over the show for the last couple of weeks because I only found out like an hour or about a day before the show two weeks ago that I would be in transition between one hotel and another right while I was trying mm-hmm. to tape Floss Weekly. I wasn't thinking about that. So thanks for taking that show on at the last minute. I really appreciate that. No problem. And uh, we should also mention that Aaron's done a fantastic job as well lately. Uh, he's, uh, you know, I want to spread the spread this credit around. He's done a great job of, of taking over and hosting himself as well. Yes, yes, very good, very good. Oh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, Aaron, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, Aaron was actually hosting, you were helping host, but you're also helping me fill in the mm-hmm. uh, the upcoming guests, which works really well, and I really appreciate that. So thanks to both, thanks to you guys for taking over the last couple of weeks, really appreciate that. And you actually mm-hmm. brought today's guest on this show. I don't know much about what Comp is, is, and I certainly haven't met Sam Spilsbury. All I could say about Comp is, is it's some sort of windowing manager. Well, I don't use a windowing manager because I'm on OS X. Can, can you tell me more about what this is so we can introduce the guest? properly? Yeah, no problem. Um, Comp is, is um, I'll try and give you the very quick overview. It is, as you said, mm-hmm. a window manager. So it looks after all of the things that you've got open on your desktop and um, it controls all of that. But the very cool thing about Comp is, is it was uh, it does compositing and 3D effects and it can do all kinds of very cool slick things. And it's been around since about 2005, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh, I started using it in 2006 and uh, it's really kind of led the way in 3D effects and eye candy, as I like to call it, on the uh, on the Linux desktop. 
So it's more of an eye candy kind of thing. Maybe it makes windows like rotate around each other to roll them on and hmm. stuff that I saw somebody do once. Yeah, Something it like does. That. And it also does have um, uh, some functional elements as well, because comp is, I'd never even thought about this until a visually impaired friend of mine told me about it. Uh, it actually will zoom in using the compositing tools. It will zoom in and blow up any area of the screen to a much larger size so you can, you know, you can see it better, basically, which is uh, oh, an accessibility cool. feature. Very cool. OS X mm. has that. I use that a lot when I'm demoing stuff because when I've got a screenshot, I can actually slide in and then magnify any part of the screen. So it's really nice for doing demos. So I'm looking forward to hearing about what Compass is then. And But before we do that, I have a sponsor. I love it when I have sponsors. Sponsors are so cool. We have uh, this episode of Floss Weekly is in fact brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.twit. And Netflix delivers movies directly to your home and that saves you time and money and hassle. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes episodes and movies. You can stream them directly to your PC or Mac, like I do here with my uh, my Mac laptop whenever I'm in a hotel like this. Or you can stream them to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including the Xbox 360, the PS3, the Nintendo Wii, the Roku. Uh, I also have an iPhone app that does it. I know there's other apps uh, available to watch Netflix as well. I watch it on my iPhone when I'm driving. Not when I'm driving. When I'm riding around in buses and stuff like that, I can actually watch Netflix shows, which is pretty cool. You can also get DVDs by mail on about one business day. But, you know, I've, I've been a Netflix subscriber for about six months, and I haven't had my first DVD yet. I don't need the DVDs. I've got all the streaming going on. Watch as many movies as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees or no due dates. So as I said, when I'm off in a, in a hotel like this and I travel an awful lot, it's really great to be able to pull up Netflix and say, what do I want to watch tonight? There's thousands of movies, thousands of television shows. I just recently rediscovered this old series from, uh, I think it's like the late 80s called Earth 2. And I remember seeing it go by. It was a short-lived series because Frankly, it sucked. <laughs> it actually wasn't that great, but it had interesting effects, big budgets. Uh, the story plotted along very slowly, and I didn't remember much about the series. I think I only saw like a few scattered episodes. But with Netflix, I was able to start right from the beginning of the episode. No commercials at all. It just plays on my laptop full screen. And what I really liked about it is I started watching it two weeks ago before going on the cruise. And then when I went back to start watching it again Monday, now that I'm back here on land... It knew exactly where I left off because when I hit play for the series, it went right to the very second that I just finished closing my browser two weeks ago. So I really like that because you can watch through a series, you know, and not have to keep figuring, now, was I on episode seven or episode eight? It always keeps track of that for you. That's really great advantage of that, plus a lot of great movies. I've been watching a lot of movies on Netflix, again, on my phone, on my uh, Roku box at home, and on my laptop. It's a great way to do that. Maybe someday I'll actually start getting some of the DVDs from there. But I suggest that you take up and look at Netflix as an option. You can instantly watch movies movies and television just like I talked about or thousands of TV episodes and other movies. So again, uh, when you register for a free trial membership, you can go to netflix.com slash twit for your free 30-day membership. We thank Netflix for their support of Floss Weekly and This Week in Tech. And so let's go ahead and bring on our guest. Thank you. It's, it's, it's great to be here. I've been listening to these podcasts for a while and uh, it's, it's really awesome that we can be talking about the stuff that we do. Very good, very good. Now, I did a really horrible um, um, intro to what uh, uh, Compiz is, or Compiz, sorry, at the beginning of the show. Uh, so bad, I can't remember the name now that I had to look at my notes. Um, and I, I, I even had Dan try to give a little bit of a help to help me understand what this was. But why don't you give us sort of the 30,000-foot view, kind of, you know, when you would use it, why you would use it, and what it accomplishes for you. Okay, so... It, Compiz is sort of one of those things that you probably wouldn't notice is actually running for you unless you actually went up and looked on the internet and you go, oh, that's the thing which does all the 
really amazing cool crap that you find on my desktop. It's it's basically what's known as a compositing window manager. So what that means is that uh, first of all, it's in charge of managing your windows on the screen, but second of all, it's also in charge of drawing your screen. So what it does is it uh, it actually well, it uses OpenGL in order to render those windows on screen. And when we're doing that, it also has a plugin architecture, which means you can modify any way which those windows are being rendered on screen, which allows for some really neat effects like you know, rotating cubes or wobbly windows. Um, and it's it's also a really good base for implementing 3D interfaces on top of the desktop. So that's, for example, what the Unity project is doing for Ubuntu. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. I, I have to confess, I, uh, I, Compiz is a, 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 an application I've used for a long time, uh, since about 2006, and uh, it's one of the, the things that I always point to. I think it's probably converted more people to Linux than almost any other app I can think. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe Apache is quite, it was up there, but uh, people love iCandy. <laughs> and um, yeah, it seems uh, right back, I mean, I remember back in 2006, people say, I, I say this too much, but I, I first uh, tried Compiz and saw the, the desktop rotating in the cube and stuff like that. And uh, I was instantly hooked, you know, everybody wanted that. Because at the time, um, nobody was doing real, 3D graphics like that. So um, how did you get involved personally with, with Compass? Um, where was your interest in it? So funnily enough, uh, what, what you were saying about uh, Compass converting people to Linux. So obviously I'm, a, I'm not the original author of Compass. That, that was uh, David Rieberman back at Novell. Uh, but I've been maintaining it, well, at least the, uh, the development series for the past few years now. And it was actually Compass that originally converted me to saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to be using the Linux desktop for a long time. So, I, and I mean, Compass is really just how I got involved with Linux. And this is, you know, the, the kind of contribution that I've been making for most of the time that I've actually been around here. So the way I originally got involved is uh, sort of when the Barrel and Compass merge started, uh, I started, you know, just doing some regular blogging and then I just saw some things. Uh, I think I was really inspired by this one plugin that someone wrote that was uh, freely rotation windows. Uh, it was mm. like colloquially referred to as free movements, right? So you can actually tilt and rotate your windows in 3D. So it's so it's not just like the cube. It's actually like you could have like an upside down window or one that's mm. on, its, on its side, right? Like It was just really <laughs> awesome. And I thought, I'm going to hack on that. And I did. And I just worked and worked and worked on it. And it just became really awesome. And I thought you know, this is a really awesome project to be working on. So I just ended up working on other stuff. And then, uh, you know, some of the other developers approached me and they said, you know, we're, we're rewriting the core in C++. Uh, would you be interested in helping out? And that's really where everything got started. And that's how I ended up sort of being the maintainer today. Mm. Yeah, and we, sh we should probably talk a little bit about your role as maintainer. So what, what does that involve then uh, on a kind of a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, uh, Reading through bug reports and fixing them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mm. it's not that interesting in terms of writing new features for me, basically because I do need to keep up with a lot of bug traffic. And, you know, I I also worked for, uh, well, last year I was employed for by Canonical to do this right. And mm. basically my main job is to look after the bug traffic and to say, okay, well, you know, what what is impacting the user's desktop experience? Because uh, obviously... Uh, Compass is a very critical piece of software within the stack, and you want to make sure it works right. Um, so, really, I, I don't do a lot of uh, flashy, glitzy graphics stuff that, like the rotating cubes and all that. But I do a lot of um, under the hood work to make sure it just works for everyone, and, and it handles a lot of corner cases that 
uh, you might not have actually expected. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it sounds very cool. And, and Compiz, um, to kind of back up a little bit, Compiz is, is a project with quite an interesting history as well, because um, it, it, uh, there was some uh, unrest in the development community, which it sounds like may have been before your your involvement. And uh, they, they split, they forked into, uh, somebody decided to call one version Beryl, for some reason, I don't really know why. Yeah. And then Compiz carried on. And there was a bit of... Um, yeah, animosity, I would say, between the groups. But then later on, they merged back in and called it Compass Fusion. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Was that before your time? Do you have any involvement in that? So funnily enough, uh, I was... I wasn't really involved in the politics of the fork and the politics of why the fork happened, since that was sort of before my time. But uh, I did pick up my involvement within the community at around the time that the merge between the barrel and the compass. Well, it was it wasn't really the compass project. It was what was called uh, the compass extra project. So that was mm. just a set of community add-ons for the compass core, uh, <laughs> most of which were ports from barrel. So. I guess the two communities, I don't know, they decided that, you know, having this this fork is pretty much pointless if you just have the same API as each other, right? So mm. ended up merging back in. And uh, funnily enough, none of the original Compass developers actually remain. It's it's mostly all just uh, people who forked off into Barrel and have now merged back into mm. Compass and called themselves Compass. So I guess oh, right. this is very comparable to... Uh, you know, what happened with AT&T, <laughs> you know, kind mm. of like split from AT&T and then just became AT&T again. So, yeah, it's 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 a good way to think about the project history. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I used uh, Beryl for a while. It became like the main, it seemed to become the, the main one. Compass went a little bit quiet, but I was really yeah. pleased to see that they, they brought it back and, and, you know, merged in uh, together again because it, it can be really... Uh, well, it sounds obvious, but it can be really divisive when these things kind of fork and people fall out. And, you know, it's a shame to lose that kind of uh, lose those resources and so on. So, um, yeah, you actually um, you started uh, quite young, didn't you? You started at the age of 14. Is that right? Working on Compass? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, I, I got started with uh, just poking around with various Linux distros at 14. Uh, I then I sort of became involved in the community at 15 and started, you know, kind of writing some code. Of course, I hadn't written any code before, right? So I just kind of learned by looking at the code and eventually picking it up. And uh, I'm 19 now and I'm maintaining the, well, basically the entire development series. So it's, it's, I've come a long way. And uh, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal that I got started that young. I still can't believe that I did because, I mean, I, I look at other people and it's like, whoa, you know, like you're 23 and you're just learning to code now. So I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that I was able to do that. Um, it's it's quite a fascinating story for me anyway. You know, I actually have some experience with that because I started actually programming when I was very young too, I think probably at the age of 9 or 10. And and I'm curious actually as to how how did you become curious enough to be programming? Were you, did you start programming and work with computers at 14 or was it earlier? And and what motivated so, you that way? Where, what kind of environment were you in? Okay, so... I. I, you know, I, I always kind of saw myself as a power user. Uh, I, I knew my way around things, right? Um, and by, you know, at, at least when I was 14, I was, you know, compiling my own stuff and I was fairly comfortable with, you know, uh, getting dirty with the, the, the various bits of Linux and not being afraid to touch anything, right? 
Um, and then I, I guess the the coding bit sort of just came naturally to me. It's it, it took a very long time to pick it up and to truly master it. But uh, in terms of just going, okay, well, I'm just going to do a quick hack here and maybe I'll change this and see how it works. It was very trial and error for me. Um, and, you know, the, the environment that I worked in was actually very supportive. I mean, I, I have to thank all the previous Compass developers who put up with me because I'm, I'm pretty sure I was quite a nuisance in my young age. So, it's, mm. I, I mean, it's good that they were supportive in it. I think it's good that, you know, these the, the communities can say, okay, well, you know, this person might be a bit annoying, right? But they, they can see something in someone like, you know, a, a potential to say, okay, well, this person could be a rising star of the project, right? Um, and that's the great thing about open source is that people just aren't afraid to cooperate with you no matter how inexperienced you are. And, uh, you know, it, it is sad sometimes in open source when you see sort of a culture of elitism, but it's it's really true in the vast majority of projects. And you think even with like a, a project with lots of politics like Combas, you know, there'd, there'd be a culture of elitism. But in fact, a lot of the developers are very, very supportive, um, which, you know, really encouraged me to keep on going at it and to, you know, eventually step up to the plate and start fixing bugs and other things like that for them. So you really got a strong, strong education very early on because you both had to figure out how to do the programming part of it by the tinkering and stuff, as you said you did. And I'm actually a little more yeah. curious. I want to ask some more questions about learning how you learn programming. But then just to keep adding on that, though, then to also be thrust into a project that had some political issues going on it because, you know, whenever there's a fork, there's grief. Uh, that's that's always oh, yes. there's, there's rejoice on one side and there's grief on the other. And then the third parties are alternately rejoicing and griefing at the same time. So it's a little straight. A fork is always a really messy situation. And so to find yourself in the middle of all that, or at least in the, the healing parts of that coming back. And then now to be fairly young, and I, I understand you're, are you currently employed by, um, uh, yeah, I'm the guys who employed by Canonical. Yeah, Canonical. So what's it like then, let's start from the most recent thing backward then. So being 19, I guess, and an employee of Canonical, has that been an asset, a liability? Where does it get the weirdest? Uh, okay, it gets the weirdest when, uh, you know, so for example, I'm also full-time at university, right? Believe it or not, I'm not studying computer science, I'm studying law. Uh, mm -hmm. So it gets a little bit weird when it's just like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working part-time and then I also uh, have to balance my commitments with the rest of the campus community and then I have my social life and then also university. So it's a very, very fine balance for me. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not like I've just, you know, campus is like my life, right? So that, that's sort of where it gets the weirdest. And I guess also it's kind of like, you know, I, I tell my friends back at university, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to Budapest for two weeks. And they're like, what? What for? And I was like, oh, you know, it's <laughs> just, just UDS. <laughs> they're like, oh, gee, damn. You know? And I, you know, I, I got back uh, the other day, right? And, you know, there's these people from my class. And they're just like, gee, there's been all these, like, rumors about you that you're in, like, Switzerland. It's like, no, I heard he's <laughs> in Germany. And, like, it, it's, it's, it's really quite fascinating to see how your peers actually react to this but you know I've, I've had a few friends who are in similar situations and i mean it's you you learn to deal with it really fine um and you learn to you learn to actually i i guess i kind of see myself as being able to actually juggle that along with like my my social life back home but yeah it, it's interesting kind of telling your friends you know who might not have even traveled outside of australia before like oh you know by the way i'm off to Budapest. i'll be back in two weeks <laughs> like yeah, mm. it's it's very interesting. That's where it gets cool. weird. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Okay. And so, so it's it's really not any different than say having a job at a like a like a restaurant or a bagging groceries. It's just that you work on things that you type something at your screen, and people all around the world will notice in, in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's well. It's there's there's intensive code review processes, so it usually takes that an hour. But <laughs> 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 it's a few hours, right? <laughs> it depends it's, on how many times you hit the uh, the like request for code review button it's just like hey review my branch review my branch review my branch damn it like <laughs> that's that's got to be pretty impressive and pretty amazing though and, and this is definitely a different culture yeah, than yeah. the culture i was in when i was in at 19 i i worked for a large company the largest employer in oregon and i had uh, a salary at age 16 i think all the way back to there and and uh, it was yeah. a lot of fun a lot of different from the rest of my friends that were slinging burgers and stuff but nowhere near the kind of impact that you have already i just i i am i am impressed i am just i am actually somewhat envious that kids these days have a whole lot better deal than we did back uh, 20 years ago um but going back to the other part how did how did you how did you learn programming and were you already like a good abstract thinker before that so i i at least i like to think of myself as a a fairly intuitive and logical thinker um, you know, kind of logic was one of my strong points. Uh, funnily enough, mathematics isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I kind of picked up programming because, I don't know, it just seemed to flow as perfectly natural to me. And I think, uh, you know, while, while the, you know, when I, was, when I was sort of picking it up, there were bits where, you know, I, I struggled with like, damn it, why is my code not compiling for like, you know, the next three hours? And then you realize that you missed off a semicolon off the end of the line, right? Uh, yeah, yeah we've, we've all been, um, and, but for some reason it's, I, I didn't really learn by taking tutorials or by, uh, you know, reading guides or reading books or taking courses. I just learned by kind of looking at the code and figuring out where things were and figuring out where various bits and pieces fit in the grand scheme of things and figuring out which bits you need to tweak to do what, right? And then as soon as you get an idea of that bigger picture, I guess the knowledge of the language kind of fades into the background. It's it's not something that you need so much as a broader understanding of how the project works, right? And I mean, I guess it's it's the same when you go to any new code base. You know, you, you look at it and you have to take at least, you know, four or five days to really digest what's going on, right? And I mean, Combus was the same as, well, it took months for me, right? But... You know, eventually you do it, and eventually you kind of it's well, it's like learning to uh, fix a car by yourself, right? You know, you you open up the hood, and then just the engine is just this complicated mess of uh, of I, I don't even know where to begin, and just eventually you take it apart piece by piece, and you find out how everything works, and then you find out which parts are broken and which parts needs fixing, um, and that's just how I've been doing it ever since. You know, it's fascinating the way you said that you learned programming by looking at an existing running system. I always tell people when they're learning programming to begin with that really what you want to do is, yeah, there's tutorials, there's ways to kind of step through it, and there's probably structured courses, structured, uh, you know, places you could go to really get, you know, what what theoretically is the basis for being a good programmer. But I tell people you don't really know the language, you don't really know how to program in it 
until you've sat down with the large code base, the larger the better of something that can works all together, maybe small ones initially, but really you've got to look at a large system and be able to, and you know, you may get only five lines down in the code, then you go, I wonder what this subroutine calls and why it does that, and then you have to go investigate that, or maybe it's something you need to learn about the language, about how it passes things back and forth. But yeah, yeah. that's sort of practical education where what you're doing is you're picking up what I eventually call a feel of the language, that there's a pattern to how yeah. it works and there's a rhythm to how it works. And that's really what happens when you're starting to master a language. And it's interesting that you discovered that as well uh, for what you did. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that, that's exactly right. Uh, it's, it's, it's learning where everything fits in and it's learning how things fit together. That's, that's really when you learn how things work. Um, now, imagine if, all of Compiz, yeah. imagine if all of Compiz was closed source, except for some plugins that people were using and putting together, how much harder that would have been for you to investigate all of what Compiz is actually doing, just to be able to write what a plugin would be. And this is another argument I make for open source software, at least as far as the education of the people that are coming up as new programmers, because you've got this huge mm -hmm. code base. In fact, you could drill down to every piece of Linux from top to bottom and figure out how it works. If you can't even figure out how the X11 window manager or the, the X11 interface is connecting to Compiz, you, you can go in and look at it, and the source code's right there. Oh, yes. Um I'd have to say, like, when, when I first started out with Compass uh, and when I first started actually writing plugins by myself and when I first started modifying plugins by myself, um, it was more a general idea of... I, I guess I really started from the top and worked down, right? So I kind of just got a general understanding of how the plugin worked. And, you know, for, for me, the core was really just a black box. I didn't really look at it that often unless, you know, I, I got, like, a funny backtrace that ended up in core, right? Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been beneficial though, because I don't think I would have actually been able to engage with the project that much if it wasn't open source. And the, the fact is, the fact that the code is open and the fact that I kind of said to myself, you know, okay, I've, I've kind of mastered this whole, you know, I looking at like, I, the majority of the work I did was on this like free wins plugin, um, initially. And I kind of told myself, you know, well, now that I've kind of figured this out, right, I, I started looking at some other things in core and I started looking at how changes were being made. And I started looking at like the diffs that were coming through. And when, when you do that, you just every single time you do that, you get more and more of an idea of the bigger picture. And it's that knowledge of the bigger picture that really assists you in being able to, you know, fix bugs, even that might have ended up in like other plugins, right? So it's it's been hugely beneficial because Core has been open source, and I, I believe it's been open source ever since its inception, which has been which I'm pretty sure is what inspired a lot of development on it. Because you know people can go in and they can say, okay, well you know what does this function call do right? And it's not like you have to go look at the non-existent documentation because well there isn't any. Uh, it's you can actually go and look at the code and figure it out for yourself. So I, I think that's been really beneficial. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's very cool. And you'd expect me to say this being a, a, a Linux advocate, but um, one thing I found really cool about Compass is that uh, back in kind of 2005, 2006, when I started using it, um, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of 3D stuff like this going on on either Windows or Mac at the time as well. So it felt like we were actually 
because something we often get accused of is kind of emulating what all the proprietary guys do, and it felt like we were doing something yeah, yeah. slightly different. And in the meantime, uh, other desktops have caught up and stuff, but at the time it felt really kind of groundbreaking. I didn't know any other desktop with a, a spinning cube and all that kind of stuff on it at the time. <laughs> um, that, that's, um, that may be my ignorance, I don't know. Um, yeah, so that's so, very cool. So, um, sorry, yeah, you wanted to say? Go on. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I was uh, just going to say, say is that, uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, uh, all I was going to say is that I think uh, these these innovations were sort of being made at the same time on every single platform. So if if you look at the way that macOS and uh, and Windows is running, right, they were only starting to lay the groundwork for this idea of a external process which actually composites a screen using the graphics hardware. Like that's the fundamental thing you had to grasp, right? And then sort of everything else on top of that was just sort of a different implementation. So I, I think what, one of the benefits of open source and Linux and one of the things that we do was, was that we were very able, easily able to rapidly prototype it. So, you know, once we said, okay, we want this and let's just get it out there and done with, uh, a source code drop was actually done very early. So while, you know, we still had like versions of, uh, of Arrow and uh, Quartz Extreme, uh, it's still running in the Windows and MacOS worlds. Well, I think Quartz Extreme has been around for about a year. Uh, it, you, you found that like in the Linux world, you could just like do a code drop and it would just work, uh, even though it's just like a very rough prototype. Um, and that's been really beneficial, I think. And that's been one of the ways which I think we've paved the way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. I mean, I don't want to get in too much into Linux propaganda here. I realize I'm not here for that, so I don't want to upset yeah. any of the other OS <laughs> users there. Um, yeah, so uh, getting back into the kind of the technical side of, of Compass, we've talked about the fact that it's it's a 3D window manager. It does all these cool things. Um, so can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about how it actually works? I mean, obviously, it must tie into X11, I'm assuming, um, and uh, yeah. GNOME probably and things like that. Okay, so there's there's two real fundamental parts to Compass. Uh, well, okay, there's there's three because I sort of want to touch on this as well. So first of all, Compass is actually platform independent. Um, platform in terms of uh, you can actually use it with GNOME or KDE or XFC or on its own. Uh, basically, we, we just have plugins which actually provide the integration between GNOME and KDE. So, mm. for example, your window decorations, uh, like the close and maximize buttons and your title bar, are actually provided by a separate plugin and a separate process which goes and grabs those from Node and puts them into our process. But I guess the two fundamental tenets of Compass is, first of all, you have just a general X11 window manager. So, the way X11 works, right, is um, well, X11 was written in the 80s, right? And it's it's pretty dumb. It doesn't know a lot about window management paradigms that we would have today. So, for example, X11 doesn't know about window de uh, decorations and window title bars. It doesn't know about minimizing windows. It doesn't know about virtual desktops. It doesn't know about you know, the ability to move and resize windows, right? So what we have is we have uh, an external process called the window manager, which actually uh, handles all that for you and handles the interaction with the user. So that's the first bit of Compass is it actually manages your window windows essentially. And it allows you to do those resize and move operations and everything like that. Um, the, the next fundamental bit of Compass is that it's also an application that essentially draws a, a, well, into a full screen buffer using OpenGL pretty much all the time. So everything that you see 
on your screen is actually being rendered by the 3D engine of your card all the time hmm. um, if you're using Compass, right? And this is really important for a number of reasons. So first of all, it takes, it takes the actual... Because we're using the 3D engine, there's, there's some optimization techniques that we can do, which basically means that, for example, whenever you move a window, your applications aren't trying to like frantically redraw the like uncovered areas. Um, so that's like a big win that you get. The, the second big win also is that whenever your screen refreshes, it's not your CPU that's actually having to, you know, use up cycles redrawing the screen. It's just something that your, DP, that your GPU can just dump to the screen and something that it can do very quickly and efficiently. So there's, there's these two bits. And the, the reason why they're actually married together is because, you know, the pe people of, I guess, the developers of these comp compositing window managers like, Kwin and uh, Mutter and you know error on Windows and ports on macOS have, have sort of realized that people people want to be able to interact with their, in their with their desktops in a, a fun way right? and one of the fundamental ways that they interact with their desktop is window management so if there was a way that we could actually use the 3d engine on the card in order to give some like really neat visual effects to this window management it would actually be really good right so the for example like the the bubbly windows that you have that would not be possible unless you had integration with your existing window manager on the system. So you have this part mm. that does some very boring work and also a part that does some rendering. But when you marry them together, you get something that's a lot more. And that's that's essentially how Compass works. Mm. Excellent, excellent. And uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that, um, I know when I first used Compass, I think I did what everybody does, which is turn the uh, effects up to 11 and, uh, <laughs> and, have, like, window, and have windows bursting into flame as I close them and stuff like that. So um, it must be really important to have, the, as you said, the graphics card do a, a lot of this work because, I mean, unless you've got a, a super... Have we lost you? Um, yeah. Hello. So, um, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I yeah. lost you for five seconds. That's all right, no problem. So, um, yeah, that's that's very cool. So it's good to get a, a technical overview of how uh, of how Compass actually actually works. Um, and uh, I, I was curious because you mentioned that you work at Canonical, who are the makers of Ubuntu yeah. uh, Linux, and they've uh, yeah. just in the last version, 11.04, uh, we've switched. They've switched to the Unity uh, desktop, and I know that's actually based on Compass. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, what's your involvement with it, and how come it was based on Compass? Okay, so uh, there's there's a bit of an interesting story to this. So. Originally, uh, Unity was actually based on a similar compositing window manager called Mutter. Um, I may just turn off my video and turn it back on again because I think my camera is locked up or something. Um, okay, I should be back. Hello. Um, so, yes. So, originally in, uh, in the Maverick Meerkat, what we had was we had, uh, we actually had Unity that was up and running and it was based on the Clutter framework. So it was uh, Clutter, Clutter is this widget toolkit that's based on OpenGL. And underneath that, we also had it running on top of a window manager called Mata, which is uh, essentially this, this same kind of technique of compositing window manager um, implemented with this Clutter toolkit. So it, I, primarily the, the reason why, uh, why we decided to go with Compass in, in the, the version that you've seen 11.04 is because um, there's, 
well, Clutter is uh, Clutter is actually this this really great toolkit, and it does a lot. However, um, there's because it has this really well defined API. Uh, it is very restrictive in some senses, and it doesn't allow you to do certain things that you might want to be able to do with, you know, for ex- on a 3D desktop, for example. Uh, you know, which which I guess is problematic. And the the reason why Compass, I guess, kind of stood out to the developers, you know, when they at least contacted me about this, was because Compass is very much a window manager that allows you to overload pretty much all of its functionality. So. In, in plugins, for example, you can actually create a function which completely stops core from drawing windows on screen, and you can just do it yourself. Um, and I guess fundamentally, what Unity needed was it needed to be able to just draw something on screen using OpenGL and do it fast. And that's really what Compass allowed it to do. So if, if you look at the way that Unity is actually implemented, uh, it's just a single plugin that's called like the the Unity shell plugin, right? And literally all this does is just every single time your screen redraws, it just dumps your your panels and launcher and uh, dash onto the screen. And it also does a little bit of input handling and things like that. But if you, you look at the overall architecture, like within Unity itself, it's very complicated. But within like the bridge between Compass and Unity, it's actually very simple. Um, and, you know, that's that's something which I think the developers really value is the fact that Compass really gets out of your way. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that must be must be really useful. And um, Unity is, is a, I talked about this last week when I was uh, discussing uh, general stuff with Aaron. Unity is quite a major change in, in the, uh, the desktop, I would say, certainly in the, in the Ubuntu world. And you've got things like GNOME 3 as well now. So how do, how do these developments affect Compass? Because, I mean, until recently, it felt to me as though... Um, I don't know whether I was just misinformed, but it felt to me as if Compass was almost getting pushed to the side a little bit in favor of things like uh, the 3D effects that are built into other window managers or into other desktop environments like GNOME 3 and and these other things, and now Unity as well, but it's it's interesting, yeah. So so funnily enough, I think it's... uh, there, There was a time during the continuation of the project where we were actually facing some pretty serious trouble because you know, essentially that there was some stuff that Gnome was doing where they said, okay, well, we're going to be building the panel and shell into the window manager process, right? Which basically mm-hmm. means that if you want to run compass, you would not have a panel and a shell. Uh, well, you'd have the old uh, classic Gnome panel, which is only sort of half-maintained, right? Uh which, which is, which I think is a real problem for users, and I think it's, it's a shame that there couldn't be greater cooperation between the, mm-hmm. the various desktop environments. And I'm, I'm one of these, I'm kind of one of these uh, Unix philosophy people. I, I like to be able to have everything in my desktop kind of running in a separate process, so I can just swap it out whenever I want. Right. So the, the, those developments in GNOME, I think, did actually impact the project. I'm, I'm actually glad that you know during those days where Essentially, we were we were kind of left with like half a rewrite, and you know we couldn't add any new features because we were busy rewriting all the plugins, which, believe it or not, takes a very long time. Uh, we were kind of left at this point in the project where we go, okay, well, where to from here, right? Do we do we keep on going and do we keep on trying to go forward, even though we don't know what the future is, uh, or do we just stop? So I'm I'm kind of glad that I kept it going, um, and I think that's. 
that's primarily the reason why the Unity developers actually approached me. Um, and I said, well, we're, we're interested in using this because I, I think one of the most fundamentally important things to them was they needed a healthy upstream to base themselves upon. Um, and I think while we were sort of faltering, at least we were like good enough. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they picked us. Um, and I, I think I, I see the role of Compass is changing now. I think it's, it's not so much about uh, glitzy effects and other things like that, as much as it is something that's stable and just gets out of your way and gets the job done. Um, of course, uh, it is very extensible, so you can actually just go into. Uh, we have an, uh, we have a tool called uh, the Compass Config Settings Manager, which is like CCSM, which basically has like uh, two million option values that you can tweak. Right, so you can go in and go nuts. But also, um, Compass is very capable of getting out of your way, and I think that's that's how I see its role changing. Yeah. Very good. Uh, now, what's the community size on this? I mean, obviously, you're the lead maintainer, chief whipping boy, whatever it is in this project. But how many other people are committing and contributing to Compass on a regular basis? So, okay, so for the last year and a bit, until up until very recently, it's just been me. Um, okay. Which kind of sucks. <laughs> uh, it used to be a lot more, believe it or not, uh, except that we sort of just had a drop off on developers. I, I think they just sort of all lost interest, right? But, you know, if you can hear me, we're still out there. Uh, yes, this is, <laughs> you know, if, if actually this, this goes out to everyone who's listening. Um, if you're ever interested in, you know, helping out an open source project, Compass is a really great place to start. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a lot of the core code documented so we can get a lot of community contributors because it is a very large code base and the overhead of maintaining that, you know, stops you from implementing new features, right? But... Mm -hmm. In, in terms of what we've got now, we've got, uh, we have another engineer from uh, Linaro who's working on a port to OpenGLES, which basically, it's, it sounds kind of insignificant on its own, but what that allows you to do is it allows you to run Compass, like the compositing Magic Compass on embedded devices um, like ARM and, or, you know, smartphones or uh, smartbooks, for example. And... It, it's also the first step towards, you know, migrating away from X11 and migrating towards a newer windowing system such as Wayland, which is sort of where the world is going now. Um, I noticed that my video was locked again, so I will fix that. Um, and then just, just yeah, in the chat room, it, it says, uh, how does Wayland affect Compass? What do you have to do for that to make it work with Wayland? Okay, so... Uh, so interestingly enough, this, this is very similar to what we had to do uh, during the rewrite when we took the OpenGL support out of core and moved it into a plugin. So mm -hmm. right now in, 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 in Compass, uh, even though that, that drawing itself to the screen using OpenGL is a really integral part to how it works, that's actually mm -hmm. implemented in a separate plugin to the core, right? So my, my general idea for how this would work is that we basically just take all the X11 dependent code and move it out into a plugin and then have a different windowing system plugin like a, uh, a Wayland plugin, which actually you know, allows us to implement our own window management policy on top of Wayland. Um, Wayland is very interesting for a number of reasons because it's, um, it kind of, well, what it does is it goes against one of these fundamental design principles of X, 
which was to keep the window management server and the display server and the network server separate from each other. So mm -hmm. what Wayland does is you actually have your what's called a compositor running uh, just all in one process. So what you'd actually have is that in, in the future, uh, you know, when, when we're actually running on Wayland, um, what would actually happen is that Compass would be the one who's responsible for bringing up your display. So that, that's a very, very interesting change. And people aren't really sure how it's going to pan out yet because the, the interface hasn't been very clearly defined. It's, it's very up in the air as to what we want a future windowing system to do. But it will yield a lot of long-term performance gain and a lot of long-term infrastructure gain as well because of the fact that you are marrying these two processes, which are otherwise very difficult to keep in sync. So because, you know, and so it's funny, funnily enough, right, if you go into the, uh, into the XOR development channels, uh, what you'll find is that the, the channel topic actually says, do not write a window manager because it's, it's just damn hard to get the synchronization between you and X right. So in, in the future, if we can actually all just be the same process, if you have you know, your Windows server and the thing which clients actually connect to also be your window manager and compositor, that's, that's going to be very interesting. And that's something that I'm looking forward to. It's certainly interesting in the long history of X11. First, that X11 protocol in general has survived this long without any major revisions, just new bolt-ons on the side. I remember when the uh, window managing protocol was added. Before that, the windows themselves managed themselves, which was sort of an interesting oh, yes. concept if you think about that. That was pretty amazing. And then when, you know, when, when relatively recently, and I mean 20 years ago, <laughs> for me, relatively yeah. recently, the, the whole concept of the, the window manager call-outs, you know, that when a window was moved, it would notify some other process, and that process could decide to redecorate it or do something else with it or minimize it or something. Yeah, yeah. That, that was, was all amazing. And to see that we still have this protocol in place 20 years later yeah something like that but 20 years later where you, you basically just got one smart thing that's drawing directly to the screen and you've got another smart thing possibly on the same machine saying where the windows go and then all the individual windows are all like running their own little code in there and and that we've gotten this far with that model so I'd, i'm happy to see that we've got some a new process going on that's rethinking all those interfaces going you know maybe the thing that kind of does the drawing one window on top of another ought to be more tightly bundled. I guess that's what Wayland is including. It's also nice oh, that yes. uh, the way the way you, way you described the plug-in mechanism there, it sounds like there's no problem that can't be solved through one additional level of in indirection. So I think we're probably taking one more step along those lines. Yeah, it's uh, well, that, that's 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 a really strong point of compass, right? Is that the everything in the interface that you would actually care about is overloadable um, and that's that's really important for a lot of the way the plugins work. Uh, you, you simply would not be able to do effects like the the desktop cube unless the plugins had that level of control. And mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest, I'm I'm happy seeing that that control of the plugins, um, simply because it's it's the user that decides what gets what modules get loaded right. Um, and you know I'm kind of one of these people that maintains the policy like okay well if if a plugin crashes it's probably the plugin author's fault. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really have any like moral problems with that, but yeah, it's that that plugin. It's it's very good that the the core is very flexible and small, um, and the fact that we can actually build things on top of the core 
very easily by uh, just creating new plugins. And one of the other interesting things about the, the Compass architecture as well is that plugins can plug into other plugins. So, for example, uh, in, in the current development series, uh, the majority of plugins actually don't hook core directly. They actually hook the OpenGL plugin and they, they actually overload a lot of what the OpenGL plugin does in order to get their rendering right. So that's, that's, that's a real strength of the plugin system and that's something that I'd like to see moving forward. Very cool. Very cool. Um, just uh, so it sounded like a minute ago that you were also talking about looking for more developers and looking for other people who do translations and other things like that. There's this standard litany that we have on every project once all these people. But if you're looking for somebody specifically oh, yeah. to help you out, is, what's where, do, where does somebody see sort of like the, the hottest bugs that haven't that you haven't taken time to personally solve? Because it sounds like that's how they're getting all solved right now. But where's where's the hot bug list at? And, and how would people come to approach you about working on the project? Okay. So, uh, okay, my video is frozen again, but I'll fix it in a minute. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 because my screen locks itself, and then there's there must be a bug somewhere that causes the camera to lock. So you can just have a still image of me for a while. But um, yeah, you can actually find the well. Usually, where I track all of my bugs is on Launchpad, um, and that's just to keep things integrated um, with the rest of the Unity development cycle. Because obviously, it's because the two projects are very dependent on each other, um, essentially for their survival, right? Uh, we also have a very tightly integrated infrastructure. So the, the bug list that I track is on Launchpad. However, there mm -hmm. are bugs that we have on our own infrastructure. This is sort of where it gets a bit confusing. So it's like it's bugs.compass.org if you want to file some bugs or have a look at what's there. Um, generally, what I tell people to do, or well, not I tell people to do, but what I recommend people get involved with if they're, if they're feeling passionate about it is just like, have a look at a plugin, for example. Have a look at you know some some bit or some plugin that provides some functionality that you really like or that you have a vision for, and then just maintain that. Like just have a look over the way it works. You know, start the way I started, right? Have a look over the, over the way it works. Have a look at the way it, it interfaces with Core, and actually set a vision for that individual module module of code, right? And that that's actually that would actually be really beneficial to the project if we had you know, multiple visions for each of these different plugins. And our infrastructure makes that relatively easy. Like we have separate repositories um, for each plugin, right? And we allow each plugin to be forked independently and, and other things like that, because you know, we value individual people being able to take over maintainership of those individual plugins. Um, and it also takes a lot of the load off um, of people like me, who, you know, for example, it, it, every single time I make an API change within Compass, it's like, it's a bit of a gruesome task. You just have to like go through every single plugin and update it. Um, mm. So, so it's it's really useful when you can find a maintain for a plugin and just say like, okay, well, this is sort of this is sort of where you fit in the grand scheme of things, right? Um, this is sort of make this plugin your baby, right? Or you know, even if you don't want to get involved in plugin making, like you can still make things like the translations your baby, or make things like looking after the forums your baby, or make things like looking after the community your baby, or just uh, giving out help on the IRC channel. It's it's those kind of things which are really beneficial to the project. If you if everyone does one small thing, then it means that uh, the project essentially kind of runs itself. As long as you have like some kind of governance model in there, you, you'll find that the project runs itself. And that's what I think Compass could really use. 
Okay, and it sounds like you're looking for the same kind of lieutenants that uh, Linus has to take care of the Linux kernel then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's I, I have a very hands-off approach with these things. I kind of say, okay, well, you know, if, if you want to look after this certain module or if you want to look after this certain plugin, then it's then you have free reign, right? You're, you're the one writing the code, so you get to set the vision. It's, it's not going to be me saying, you know, I want these plugins to do these things by this date, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very much so, you know, at least for the stuff that I have to care about, I'll worry about that. And then, you know, anything else I think is, is part of where the developer wants to take it. Okay, and I have two other essential questions. Uh, one uh, whispered in my ear by Dan here a moment ago. Uh, what's the license this is under? Uh, it's mixed uh, X11, MIT, and GPL. So I believe the core is, uh, is MIT, and then the rest is GPL. Interesting. So how does the GPL license not taint the rest of the MIT license stuff when you make a distribution? Um, well, the, the GPL stuff links to the uh, MIT stuff. So it's not the other way around. So, uh, for example, I, I'm, like, I'm not too sure about the way like, these licensing stuff works because, you know, funnily enough, while I am studying law, it's just one of these things that always baffled me, right? Um, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure what, what you're allowed to do is considering the fact that we have the X11 license on Core, um, it okay. means that you can write any plugins using a license like OpenGL. Uh, not OpenGL. Uh, what is it? GPL. Uh, yes, it's it's late at night. I'm kind of losing my train of thought. Um, you can write plugins using uh, uh, GPL, and you can also write them using uh, any license that's compatible with that X11 license. Um, it does get a little more complicated when you want to link to other plugins to get their functionality, which the mm-hmm. GPL license. Um, I think you have to use a GPL license plugin in that case. Okay, I mean, I just started a question here that will take another 20 minutes to answer, which we don't have, but uh, that's a fascinating mm. topic. Maybe, maybe we'll bring you back on some, sometime when you've done a little more research. Given that you are a law major, it sounds like this ought to be something you ought to be looking into. Um, but yeah, the other question, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. go ahead. Okay, so I just also wanted to say the other question we have to ask all of our guests, Vim or Emacs? So, it's a bit of a uh, bit of a controversy, but uh, I don't use either. <laughs> oh. I I never really got into either of them. Uh, funnily enough, I actually use Cute Creator for for most of my work because okay. you know I funnily you know at, at the end of the day you just want something that works, right? Uh-huh. And Cute Creator just does the job pretty easily. I just pointed it because we use CMake as our build system which is kind of the same as what uh, Katie uses. So I just kind mm-hmm. of point to creator at like, okay, there's our build system and it goes, okay, here's all your project files. And then you hit compile and it automatically detects, you know, which executables it has to install where and what it has to run the by and how to debug it. And yeah, so I'm actually happy using just something that isn't Vim or Emacs because... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't care about the next question, then. Which, which, what's your favorite scripting language? I bet it's Ruby. Uh, Python. Oh, 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 stab twice. Oh, oh, <laughs> with that note. <laughs> with that note, I see the time is up for our interview, so. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Really, really Sam, I, I really appreciate you, Sam, for coming on the show today and talking about Compass. I've learned a lot more about window managing and everything else than I thought I would know. Well, certainly than I knew at the beginning of the show. So uh, thank you very much for uh, being on our show today.
Oh, yeah, it's, thanks, it's been Sam. a pleasure. Yes, thanks so much. Okay, so that was, uh, if you're watching the video, that was a very fuzzy Sam Spilsbury coming to us from uh, someplace a very far ways away. Uh, 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 Perth, uh, Dan, Australia. Dan, in case Dan, Australia, there we go, Australia. Oh, he's still yep. there listening. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> Dan, what'd you think? <laughs> Dan, oh, what'd you think? Hey, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I, uh, I, I've got a, a, a soft spot in my heart for for compies. as I kind of mentioned before. I, I uh, people say that I, I say this too much, bang the drum too much about the the way that eye candy does seem to attract people to uh, to certain platforms. And uh, yeah, really interesting. I think it's an interesting time to talk about compies as well, uh, given the fact that uh, there are a lot of changes going on in the Linux desktop now. As, as I was discussing there with Sam with GNOME three mm -hmm. coming in, which uh, kind of potentially uh, pushes compies to one side and uh, and then you've got unity on the ubuntu side of things so it's very interesting to hear that he's actually been approached by uh, canonical and he's working with the unity people to to keep that going i think it's good that compass has been revived in that way absolutely absolutely now i'm actually um you know i'm i'm as as people listening to the show for a long time know i'm using a, a mac laptop here running os 10 and i'm perfectly happy with the little bit of frill that's here on my desktop i can't imagine using an interface where things go whizzing around and and uh, <laughs> moving on it just that just that doesn't that gains nothing for me i know it's cool looking but maybe uh, as mm -hmm. you said in the chat room a bit ago maybe it's a generational thing where you know, the younger kids want all this whizzy stuff, and maybe I'm just too old and dinosaurish, and I just want it. I just want the window to pop up into the right place. I'd be happy if the little green button on OS 10 actually did something useful instead of change this window to another random size. I really hate that mm. green button on OS 10. I have no idea why it's there. It doesn't do any good for me wow. at all. Uh, so uh, with an open source window manager now, I could go in and actually fix that. And this is the argument that I always make about everything else on this show, which is that, you know, open source gives us that ability to uh, drill down and make modify it and make it every, the way we want to. I also argue that the small talk world, which originally created all these windows in my paradigm, had that from the top down. Every piece of that thing was aspectly uh, able to be changed and modified and source code edited and things like that. So uh, I'm glad to see that we've got very powerful window managers coming along, compositor managers coming along that are scripted and plug in a plug in a bowl if that's a word hey i'll make it up it doesn't matter and uh, mm -hmm. and, and can do the job uh any, any other comments on that aspect i also wanted to cover the thing about open source and education but you might kick that off if you want well i was gonna say yeah i mean that, that was something that came across to me um from talking to sam is that uh, he kind of he's learned programming from being able to take apart the code which uh, you would expect on a show of this nature that we would be very pro uh, open source but i mean it is such a great <laughs> argument that um i mean if he'd just been given a black box with a you know like a he wasn't allowed to, to modify or look at then how would he ever learn how it works and, and improve it and so on and uh, very interesting that he actually yeah learned coding by basically being able to look at the code. I think that's a great advantage of open source. Indeed, indeed. Not only the tinkerability, but just, you know, just the way that, uh, and he, his example of looking under the hood of a car was really great. It's like, you know, now we actually have all these microchips in there and there's no way you're going to get in like you get in with an old carburetor back from the 70s or 80s whenever they stopped making carburetors, you know, that we now <laughs> have to, we have to be computer geniuses 
to even tinker with a modern car. And I, I don't know what that's going to do for the next generation of engineers and designers in the, in the car arena. They're not going to be, they can't start as junior high kids really getting in and tweaking with it. And it sounds like uh, Sam was able to really early on get in and tinker with stuff and look at the result. He, he's, you know, he's, he's 19 and working part-time for an international corporation, getting to jet off to Budapest to go to a conference <laughs> and things like that. There's just so much new opportunity available here. And I think it's the software that, you know, this open source software movement is really what's not like it's a movement anymore. It's, it, it is, it just exists. <laughs> um, and, and really seemed to make that uh, useful for us. So I, I'm, I'm appreciating that too. And I'm glad he was able to bring up some of those points. Mm. Yeah, and maybe I've taken the car analogy too much to heart, but it seems to me that what we really need is open source software for cars in future if people are still going to continue to learn things about them and uh, and, and develop in that way. Maybe we need some more open source software for them to tinker with on, on our cars. Yeah, man, that sounds like a great thing. You know, it's sort of ironic <laughs> that here we are on an open source uh, software show and we're still using Skype. But we had the interview with the guys from Jitsi a few weeks back. And uh, unfortunately, I've been out of the country, so I haven't had time to work with the cottage to get that move forward. But it's possible very soon that we'll get away from using Skype, especially since Microsoft just bought them, um, and, uh, <laughs> and start using open source software even for Floss Weekly. And I'm really hoping that I can get to, to get to, together with the uh, cottage in the next couple of weeks to uh, get that move forward. Uh, and also ironic that, you know, that here we are using Skype to talk about something that is but is really cool and, and clear looking and yet if you're watching the video you saw that almost the entire time sam was about the fuzziest we've ever had a guest it was and i apologize to sam for that but it was that's how it looked to us so that was pretty sad uh speaking of upcoming guests there's my awkward transition for that let's go ahead and look at the upcoming schedule uh we have a whole bunch of people called in thank you dan dan's been uh, working on filling in the qt schedule for me so there's a couple people there that i might have to have you talk about because i don't know what they're about i do know about next mm. week's guest so that's a uh, Matthew Flat has got the Racket programming language that is a uh, follow-on from what used to be called PLT Scheme, which itself was a follow-on from Object-Oriented uh, Lisp. Uh, it's just been moving farther forward than that. So great teaching language. Immediately type things. Immediately see things up on the screen. Wizzy things that spin around and stuff. Great for the kids. Always good for the kids. So anyway, he's going to talk us to about, about teaching using uh, Racket, which will be great. We've got uh, Aaron Byland on uh, talking about Clear OS. Uh, you added that, Dan. What's Clear OS about? Yeah, it's a network gateway uh, server. It's kind of similar to um, Astaro Gateway, which I know Leo is a big fan of. And uh, it's all open source. Uh, it's it's effectively software that you install. You can either buy a machine from them with it installed, or you can install it on a, a beige box somewhere and plug it into your network and use it as a as a gateway, as a firewall, all that kind of stuff. It has a really cool web interface, so you can uh, you can do all of your management through your web browser. Um, looks really cool. This seems to be an area that gets covered a lot because it's it's one of these real common problems that has such easy, you know, low-hanging fruit solutions that everybody sort of builds up from there and builds up these really wonderful, complicated things. So I'm glad we have yet another of those to talk about in case the previous seven that we've talked about don't fit your uh, boat on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing about open sourcers, you know, and a lot of these projects are borrowing off each other, you know, which is really great, too. If somebody has a nice little plug-in or a way to do the interface for their firewall, another company can come along, another group can come along, I should say, and uh, and plug it in. So it's really nice. Following week, really mm -hmm. looking forward to this interview. We have a Ko, I'm going to mispronounce this, Kosuki Kawaguchi something like that, is going to talk to us about uh, what used to be called Hudson, the continuous build system, building and testing system uh, that uh, was formerly a project of Sun, now a project of Oracle, recently 
the name was released back to what has now become the Jenkins Project, which is a fork of the project once Oracle looked like they were clamping down in a bit tight. And I've got Simon Phipps as a co-host for that show, so he can give us all the behind-the-scenes crap from... Oops, did I say that out loud? The behind-the-scenes stuff <laughs> from, uh, from from the whole Sun-Oracle uh, snorkel interface there that's going to come along. Uh, Curtis Jewell, good friend of mine, is going to talk about Strawberry Pearl, which is Pearl running on the Windows platform. If you're stuck on a Windows platform, Strawberry Pearl is the best way to get Pearl to run there. Uh, and then uh, on the short list, we have a couple projects. Uh, Gitto Lite, which is the version of GitHub-type software, so you can run that in your own location. I'm going to be doing a phone call with him, though, maybe as well a Skype call, something like that. Um, but So it won't be live in our stream, but it'll end up in the stream probably around June 29th for the, the show out there. A lot more on the short list. Go to twit.tv slash floss to get the whole list and see what you want to see there. Uh, if, you see, if you have a project that you don't see on that list, did I actually say that right for the first time? Yeah, mm -hmm. yes, I did. If you have a project that you don't, that's not on the list, that you want to have on the list, have the project leader email me, Merlin at Stonehenge.com, and I will put them on the list. That's how most of the projects that are on there got there, and that's how they get up to the short version or the short part of the list. Uh, let's see what else we have notes here. Uh, you may have noticed during the show, I mentioned that there, I was taking a question from the chat room. We do have a live chat room. We tape this show at uh, 9.30 a.m. Pacific, 12.30 p.m. Pacific, or uh, me, uh, Eastern, and something around 5 or 6 p.m. in the U.K., depending on what time of the year it is. Uh, again, just go to our notes. You'll find out where that is. And you can actually join the chat room and provide questions for our guests in real time. That's on Wednesdays, I should say. Um, and uh, as for me, just where I'm going to be, I'm going to be in L.A. again next week, uh, speaking to you again live, hosting the show from the Secret Underground Bunker at Media Temple. Um, and uh, if you follow my Twitter at uh, Merlin, M-E-R-Y-N, you can find out where I am at any given moment. And uh, maybe hook up with me for uh, dinner or a drink or something like that. Uh, I'm also uh, just recently been announced I'm going to be a keynote speaker at Fizzle 12 which is the big open source 5,000 attendee conference in uh, uh, Porto Alegre, Brazil. Looking forward to that. And I've just chosen as my topic, my keynote topic, Lessons Learned from Flossing Weekly. So I'm going to take a oh. lot of the background stuff that we came up with from talking to our guests on the show. So all the things I see about building communities and about making money with uh, open source software. And I'm going to distill all that down into an hour-long talk, uh, also including some of the background scene, behind-the-scenes stuff, like how you and I, Dan, coordinate getting the guests on the show and how I would deal with the cottage and stuff like that. So it should be pretty cool. I think a good overview at both levels for people who really want to understand how podcasting works and uh, also about how to make open source work. So that be a fun little thing. Just, I, can't, I was forced to come up with a topic in the last two days. I went, what am I thinking about the most? Oh, Floss Weekly, of course. So there we go. Uh, also be at OSCON in July, the open source conference in the U.S., uh, in Portland, Oregon, my theoretical hometown. Uh, I'm actually teaching Pearl for three hours there, and I'm going to be walking around getting guests for Floss Weekly. That's enough plugging for me. Dan, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, people can find me on Linux Outlaws, which is probably the place most people would uh, would know me from. If you head to linuxoutlaws.com, that's a weekly podcast about uh, Linux, obviously, but also other open source software. Uh, one of the main things that I want to kind of plug today is I talked about this last week with Aaron. Uh, we're doing an event in the UK uh, down south near London in a, a place called Farnham Maltings, which I think is a distillery or, or a brewery uh, formerly, uh, which is a great place to hold an event, I must say. And uh, yeah, we're going to have a, a great event there 
it's called Og Camp. We run it every year. Uh, I ran it in Liverpool last year. We've got 300 tickets been taken so far, uh, and there's a waiting list uh, event right which you can sign up for. And we're looking to release more tickets soon. Uh, we've just I've been dealing with sponsors. Got some really exciting sponsors coming up. We're going to talk about free software, open source, also culture, uh, and all the things around it, including art and even people, you know, making things like textiles and stuff. It's going to be really cool. Uh, so all about kind of making stuff yourself in a, in a kind of a similar way to, I suppose, Make a Fair or something like that. So you can find out more about that at ogcamp.org. That's O-G-G-C-A-M-P.org. Uh, and apart from that, I'm actually, um, after we finish this, I'm off uh, I'm off to do a gig at The Cavern, uh, which some people may have heard of in Liverpool. Um, I've got a gig with my band tonight, so that should be quite exciting as well. Way cool, way cool. I have to come hear you sing sometime or perform sometime. I'm, I, unfortunately, I seem to always be in the wrong city at the wrong time. Do you live stream yeah. out by any chance? I have done, yeah, yeah. Um, I did the, the last uh, last gig, big gig that we did. You can actually download and listen to as a podcast if you want to. So maybe that's the way to check it out for you. Uh, if you go to ratholeradio.org, you can find out there. So that's ratholeradio.org. Um, you can find live music on there and all kinds of stuff. And episode 51 is the uh, the episode that features uh, loads of great Creative Commons artists, including uh, Rob Warren and I'm Not Left-Handed and, and so on, and myself, of course. And and like and like me, when you do music, you're actually doing sort of semi-original music. When I do music, it's just friggin' karaoke. But I do also live stream my karaoke from time to time. Watch my tweets for announcements when that actually happens. Typically Wednesday or Saturday nights when I happen to be in Portland because I've got clubs there that are uh, savvy to me being able to live stream my karaoke without getting too freaked out. So uh, I think that's all the plugging I want to do. Dan, I want to thank you again for joining me as a co-host this time, and instead of the recently hosting position I forced you to be into. But uh, thanks again for being on the show. No problem. Always a pleasure. I'll speak to you again soon. Absolutely. We'll see you online and all that sort of stuff. And again, to our listening audience and viewing audience, we'll see you again next time on Floss Weekly.